And uh, it's good to be back and to teach. I understand Daniel told a bunch of lies about me last week when he taught. He said I was playing golf, and you can ask the person that I played with. I was not playing golf at all. <laughs> when Little asked me if I was playing Catholic golf, and I said, what's that? He said, you hit it over there, and the next time you cross, and you go over there, and then you cross yourself again. <laughs> You're playing cross golf. I said, well, that's what I was playing, something, something like that, when I hit the ball. Okay, so anyway, uh, Psalm 53. Now, by way of an introduction, let me give you a few uh, observations. First of all, Psalm 53 and Psalm 14 are nearly identical. Uh, there are a few differences, but uh, if you would read 14 and you read 53, you think you're reading the same psalm. The differences are subtle. Here's the first difference. In Psalm 14, there's a reference to God seven times. In Psalm 53, there's a reference to God seven times. But in Psalm 14, uh, God appears three times as Elohim. That's just a sort of a general name for God, Elohim. So when you see the word God, you know that it's the Hebrew transliteration or equivalent of Elohim. Four times in Psalm 14, the word is Yahweh or Jehovah, translated Lord in our Bibles. Three times Elohim, four times Jehovah or Yahweh in Psalm 14. Uh, Yahweh is the covenant name of God. When God entered a covenant with the nation of Israel, he revealed himself as Jehovah or Yahweh to the people, and he said, I am going to enter into an agreement with you. So Psalm 14, uh, since the word Yahweh is used four times and Elohim only three, the emphasis on Psalm 14 is God delivering his people, keeping his covenant with his people. In Psalm 53, where we are today, I... Uh, Elohim is used all seven times. Yahweh is not mentioned once. So it's a more general term for God, and the emphasis in Psalm 53 is on God judging the nations. Okay, So one is an emphasis on his deliverance of his people, the other the emphasis is on judgment of the nations. Now, they both talk about deliverance, they both talk about uh, judgment, but the emphasis is a little different. The main verse that's different in 53 than 14 is verse 5. 53, 5. It says, They are in great fear where no fear was, for God scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame because God despised them. That verse is different in Psalm 53 than Psalm 14. Now, also, we think that the setting is different in Psalm 14 and in Psalm 53. Psalm 14 is probably a psalm of David, and it, it talks about events in David's life. Uh, psalm 53, we're not sure what the historical context is, although if you look at the superscription, notice what it says. To the chief musician, the psalm is to be set to music. It's going to be used for uh, worship. It's a contemplation, which means it's an instruction. 
And it's called a contemplation of David. But we don't know whether this is written by David or it's a contemplation or instruction um, about David or they took some events from David's life and they're applying it to their present time. We're not sure what the historical context is. But if you look down at verse 6, you see right in the middle of verse 6, when God brings back the captivity of His people. You see that phrase? Israel went into Babylonian captivity in 587 B.C. David reigned around 1,000. So this could be a psalm that's written four or 500 years later. But what they're doing is they're taking an event in David's life and they're drawing the lesson of that event in his life and applying it to their own situation. We're just not sure. Now, if they're drawing a lesson from David's life, I think the lesson is being drawn from 1 Samuel uh, 25. And I want to show you why. Look how this psalm opens. You see it says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. See that? The word fool is Nabal. Remember a guy named Nabal? Huh? Uh, and his story is found back in First uh, Samuel 25. So turn back there. And uh, we will just skim over that. <clears throat> it's a very interesting story. A man whose name means fool. And the fool has said in his heart there is no God. And Nabal is a man who acts like there is no God. And so uh, this psalm may be drawing from some of these lessons in David's life with Nabal and applying them to their own situation. So let me just show you what happens here. Uh, it says in 1 Samuel 25, 1, it says, Then Samuel died. He was the prophet that anointed David as king. Uh, David's been anointed king, but he has not yet taken the throne. King Saul is still in charge. And uh, the Israelites gathered together and lamented him, that's Samuel's death, buried him, at his home in Ramah, and David arose, and he went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now there was a man in Maron, or Maon, uh, whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 3,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. And she was a woman of good standing and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doing. Now you need to remember that. And that's very important to our text that we'll be reading. Harsh and evil in his doing. He was of the house of Caleb. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men. And David said to the young man, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, greet him in my name, say, I'm coming in the name of David. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. And what David basically wants is that uh, he, he's on the run and he wants Nabal to provide himself, David, and his people with some supplies. This guy's rich. He's got thousands of sheep. Can you spare a dime, buddy? Can you, can you give us something to eat? Now look what Nabal does. We're going to skip down to verse 10 because we don't want to spend the whole time in this section. Then Nabal answered David's servant and said, Who is David? Who does he think he is? You ever hear something like that? Who's the son of Jesse? 
There are many servants nowadays who break away, each one from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men when I do not even know where they are from? And so he refuses to supply the food. Now, David is very angry about this. He's not ready to go in and say, well, let's just go get it ourselves. If he's not going to give it to us, we'll take it. And we'll do whatever it takes. Nabal's wife, Abigail, sort of intercedes. She knows that her husband, the fool, like many women who know who's who have foolish husbands, <laughs> uh, sort of rescue their husbands. She goes to David and uh, sort of smooths things out. Now look at verse 36. Verse 36. Now Abigail went to Nabal, and uh, this is after she's gone to David. She goes back to her husband, and there he was, holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. He wasn't a king. But he was acting like he was. And Nabal's heart was merry within him. Remember that. Nabal's heart was merry within him. He was having a good old time. For he was very drunk. Therefore, she told him nothing. She said, this isn't the time to talk to him. Little, nothing. Little or much until morning light. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal. And his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him. Now, you mark that in your mind. His, she says, here's the situation, and his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. This man's paralyzed when he hears this message. Then it happened, after about ten days, that the Lord struck Nabal, and he die. Now, I believe that this passage serves sort of as a backdrop for what is said in Psalm 53. So, if you go back to Psalm 53, uh, whether this event in Psalm 53 takes place during the Babylonian captivity, and they're dealing with a nation of Babylon, which are atheists in the sense that they don't believe in the one true and living God, and they're drawing lessons from the story of Nabal, or what it is, we're not certain, but you're going to see how all this fits together. Now, let's look in Psalm 53, and let's look at the opening statements. Okay? Here's what it says. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So here he makes a declaration. Notice what he does. He said, he has said, that's what he does. He has said what? There is no God. Okay. Where has he said it? Look what it said. He says it in his heart. Uh, he doesn't make this statement publicly. He doesn't make this statement openly, but in his heart. He doesn't believe it's a God. He uh, talks to himself. He said, ah, you know, there's no God. So, in a sense, he's an atheist, not believing in God, although he doesn't come out openly and says this. And it shows us that atheism always starts in the heart. It's not an intellectual issue. Is there a God? Is there not a God? Let's have an intellectual debate. Let's see who can win this. It's not an intellectual issue. It's always a heart issue. Uh, 
Inwardly, the atheist does not want to believe in God because he knows if there is a God, guess what? He's accountable to this God. So it's an emotional thing. And he does not want to accept this concept of God. So that's what he says in his heart. There's no God. Now, look at the characteristics of a fool. Number one, they are corrupt. This is what they are. If we want to label it, we say, here's what a fool is. Number one, they are corrupt. Meaning, by nature, they are corrupt. Number two, they have done abominable iniquity. They are corrupt. That's what they are. Iniquity, that's what they do. You see that? What kind of iniquity? The worst kind of iniquity. The worst things that you can think of, that's what they do. And why not? If there's no God, you can do it and get away with it. So it doesn't matter what you do. So what they are and what they do. Now look at this. What they don't do. What they don't do. There is none who does good. You see that? What they are, what are they like? Well, they're corrupt. They're rotten through and through. What they do? Iniquity. Commit sins of commission. What they don't do, they don't do good. Sins of omission. What does James say? When you know what to do good, when to do good, and you don't do it, you've committed sin. It's a sin of omission. Now, so, what they are, what they do, what they don't do. They don't do what? It's in the verse 1. They don't do good. Now, isn't that interesting? Remember our psalm from uh, the previous week in Psalm 52? What do we know about God in Psalm 52? Look at Psalm 52.1. talks about the goodness of God endures continuously. Do you see that? Uh, so God does good. How long does God do good? Always does good. God always does good. Look at the end of Psalm 52. Look what it says. Right at the end. I wait on your name for it is what? It's good. If you believe in God, guess what you do? Good. If you don't believe in God, guess what? You don't do good. So you can see how these psalms sort of fit together and why, why they put them in this order. In other words, when they were written, they were not written necessarily in this order. Somebody compiled them and put them in this order. And this would be the reason. For that. Now I want to show you one other thing. I want you to notice the pronouns. Okay? Look at verse 1. <clears throat> the fool has said in his heart. Look at that. The fool. That's singular. You see that? That's singular. But look at the rest of the verse. They are corrupt. That's plural. Do you see that? The one is evidently the leader. The leader in this case, it could be a military leader, it could be some sort of leader, but it's somebody who has influence. That man has said in his heart, there is no God. And here are his followers, they, plural, his cohorts, and they exhibit certain characteristics. So, now we're going to move from the category of the fool and his followers, and we're going to switch to God. Now look at verse 2. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men 
These will be the lost people, not the children of God. This is a category of children of men. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there is any who understands who seek God. God takes a survey. God looks down and he surveys the situation. And he wants to know two things. What does he want to know there in verse 2? Number one, is there anybody who understands what's going on around here? Do they understand? And number two, do they have knowledge? And number two, are they, are they ignorant? Don't they believe there's a God because they're ignorant? Or are they doing it knowledge, uh, with, with knowledge? And number two, do they seek God? Okay. Now in verse three, we have his findings. Verse two, God takes the survey. Verse three, we're given his findings. And here's what he said. Every one of them has turned aside. Notice, every one of them, without exception, has turned aside. Turned aside from what? From God? Yeah. From doing good? Yes. Without exception, everyone has turned aside. They have, look at this, become, altogether they've become corrupt. Notice they've become corrupt. Speaks of a process. Atheism and being an evil person just doesn't happen overnight. You're not born that way. You become corrupt. There's a process. There's a time period involved. God recognizes that. And then look at the end of verse 3. There is none who does good. No, not one. In the entirety, there's the one, not one that does good. Now, when you look at verse 3 and you compare it with the previous verses, what you discover is, in verse 3, they become corrupt. You see that? They become corrupt. What do you see up in verse number 1? They are what? Corrupt. You see how it's repeated? And then look in verse 3. There's none that does good. Look at the end of verse 1. There's none who does what? Good. So we have a statement of fact in verse 1. We have God surveying the situation. And God discovers that that indeed is the case. So there's, they've all turned away. There's none who understands. They're all corrupt. There's none who does good. And interestingly, the Apostle Paul quotes this verse, these verses in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, when he talks about, when he gives us his famous doctrine of sin. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks God. There's none who does good. They're all corrupt. We've all sinned and we come short of the glory of God. And that's the verse that the Apostle Paul uh, quotes. Now, why would Paul quote that when it's in the context of atheism? Because chapters 1, 2, and 3 in Romans are in the context of people who turn away from the living God. And when you see that in chapter 1 of Romans, you'll see that. Now we come to a question. Look at the question in verse 4. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread? Now, that's a question. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread? Now notice there's the second time iniquity is used. You see the word iniquity in verse 4? Is iniquity used in verse 1? Yes, they do. Abominable wickedness or iniquity. Okay. And so the question is, verse 4, do they have any knowledge? Do they have any knowledge? Uh, 
What does God ask in, in verse 2? What's the question that he does when he, when he takes his survey? He looks down upon the children of men to see if they have any what? Understanding. Do they have any knowledge? Do they have any knowledge? So now he asks the question. Have the workers, in verse 4, of iniquity, no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread? Uh, what was Nabal doing, by the way? Wasn't he eating and drinking and just not even concerned about the people? And uh, The question is, do they eat their bread? Do they eat up my people as they eat bread? Well, how do you eat bread? Uh, you eat it without any forethought. Uh, you uh, just devour the bread. You eat it. You don't think twice about it. And here he's asking a question. Is that how they devour my people? Do they eat up my people that way without any forethought? David has needs, and guess what? Don't they even want to know what the well, can you tell us the situation? Why, why do you need one of my lambs? What, what's the situation? Oh, you haven't eaten for a week? They don't answer. Nabal doesn't ask that question. He just, you know, just waves his hand and. God's people suffer without second forethought, without any conscience he does it. He just goes and eats his own food while God's people are being devoured, you see. So he says, have, verse 4, have the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. Do not call upon the Lord. Now, again, you have a repeat there. Into verse 4, they do not call upon the Lord. And what does God ask back in verse 2? He looks down from heaven upon the children of God to see if any of them understand. If any, does what? Look at the end of verse 2. If any, what? Seeks God. And here he asks the same question in verse 4. Don't they call upon God? Call upon God in what way? Uh, in repentance? Don't they understand what they're doing? Uh, why is it they're not calling upon God for forgiveness and repentance? Uh, now the psalmist doesn't answer the question. He asks the question, Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people? Don't they call upon God? He doesn't answer the question. But you know the answer. Do they devour God's people without a conscience? Yeah. Do they call upon God for help and forgiveness? No. You think Nabal had a, a twinge of guilt when he didn't give David's servants food? Couldn't have cared less. They fend for themselves. So really, to ask the question is to answer the question. Now what we come to is a twofold result. Okay. First, the result for the foolish person. Okay. Look at verse 5. There they are. <clears throat> Look at them. The writer says. There they are. Who? We're talking about these atheistic people. There they are in great fear where there was no fear. Suddenly, they do all these evil things. They don't care about God's people. They go on with their life. They do iniquity. They don't do good. Don't have a second thought about it. No pangs of conscience. No guilt. And then suddenly, just like that. Out of the blue. Look, look what it says. Verse 5. There they are in great 
fear where there was no fear. Suddenly, unexplicably. Uh, they're overtaken by fear. They have a panic attack. Out of the blue it happens. Just like that. Where did it come from? And suddenly they're paralyzed by fear. So here's Nabal just getting drunk and eating, living it up. And guess what? Suddenly his wife comes and what happens to him? His heart fails. Just like that. Bam! Gripped by fear. Comes paralyzed like a stone. Can't even move. Where did that come from? <laughs> you don't realize that every time you sin, you get your guilt comes <laughs> on your shoulders and this happening an effect on you. And suddenly, just out of the blue, here comes this tremendous fear and this guy just is gripped by this fear and he has this panic attack and he just can't move. That ever happened to you? Jesus talked about the last days when they said, well, what are the signs of the last days? And Jesus said, and men's hearts shall fail them for fear looking after the things that are coming upon the earth. Didn't bother him yesterday, but suddenly just gripped by fear. And I, I was thinking as I was preparing this lesson, is that we have another example of somebody just gripped by fear out of the blue. And I thought about Cain. Cain kills his brother Abel. Then not have a second thought about it. God said, hey, where's Abel? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? How do I know where he is? He knew where he was. He killed him. Couldn't have cared less. God says, okay, I'm going to put you out of the garden. And suddenly, bam, just like that. He's just gripped by fear. He said, if you put me out of the garden, there'll be people trying to kill me. Just like that, just gripped by fear. <laughs> Panic attack. And that's what you have here. Notice who's gripped by fear. There they are. Look at the plural there. There they are. That's the followers. The followers of Mr. Atheist are suddenly gripped by fear. Fear. Why are they afraid? Look what it says. Because God has scattered the bones of him. Singular. Do you see that? They, plural, are gripped by fear, the followers. Why are they gripped by fear? Why are they afraid? Because God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. And that phrase, God has scattered the bones of him, simply means God's killed me. What happened to Nabal, by the way? Dead as a doornail. What do you think all of his friends that went to that party thought? Boy, if that happened to him. But in this setting, I think what's happened is there's some military leader, some foreign king, and he's got his troops and he's encamped around Israel. Maybe the Babylonians and they've, they've, got, they've come in and they've just captured the Israelites. And uh, now what God is doing is God has killed the leader and he's going to free the Israelites from Babylonian captivity. And when God moves in, suddenly everybody goes <gasps> and they're gripped by fear because God's taken care of their leader. It says he scattered the bones. It means he didn't even have a place to bury him. He's killed on the battlefield. He doesn't have a place to be buried. He doesn't get a decent burial there. And then look what it says at the end of verse 5. You, that would be Israel, have put them to shame. Probably in some battle, you know, when they, the arrogant Babylonians or whatever the situation was, just thought they could come in and finish off the Jews. It says, you've put them to shame. Uh, on what basis have you put them to shame? Because God has despised them. 
Boy, you ever read that statement before? Think of this all-loving God, a God who never hates, a God who doesn't have any contempt. God has contempt. God despises the enemies of his people. God despises people who try to oppress and hurt and harm his people. He has contempt for those people. Does he love them? Yes. Does he have contempt? Yes. There's more sides to God than one side. And we don't realize this is divine contempt. God's judgment. So that's the result for the the atheist crowd. Now look at the result for God's people. Look what it says in verse 6. Oh! This is like an, an exclamation. Oh, that salvation, deliverance of Israel would come out of Zion. This is a uh, a statement of hope, a statement of expectation. Things are turning around. Oh, the deliverance of Israel would come out of Zion. When God, when is that going to happen? When God brings back the captivity of His people. So this probably is a time when a group of people are in some sort of captivity, or the Babylonian captivity, 587, went down 70 years they were in captivity, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and it looks like things are changing, and in the end they will change. Oh, the deliverance of Israel, that it would come out of Zion, that's where God lives, when God brings back the captivity of his people. And then look what it says. Let Jacob rejoice, and Israel be glad. That's the response. Hey, look at that. The fool fears. The fool fears. What are the believers doing? They rejoice. The fool is judged. But look at the believers. They are delivered. It's the same with every age. Doesn't matter whether you live in David's time, whether you live in Babylonian captivity time, you guys people, or you live in our day, and you don't happen to live in the United States where things are going fairly smoothly for Christians. How about you live in Somalia, and you have some guy, atheist strongman, and his henchmen, and you say, "What's going to happen to us?" Let me tell you something. God can grip that person's heart just like that, and suddenly they'll have a panic attack, and everything can be reversed on a dime. There's always expectation for deliverance. It could either happen in our time, or it will happen in the future. As Dr. Criswell said, at that great assize, when we talked about that, the great assize, when all the God deniers are judged, and all God's people are delivered and step into the kingdom of God. And on that basis, we can say, let God's people rejoice. Let God's people be glad. And we'll pick up with Psalm 54 next week. Ending our psalms for the summer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a great God. And whether people deny your existence or live as if you do not exist, we are those who depend upon you. We will rely upon you no matter what anyone does. We will not deny you. We will stand by faith when all things look dark, knowing that you're surveying the situation. You've got things in control. You've got the, 
the heart of the king in your hand. And every nation that's come against your people is gone in the past. And the nations present today who stand against your people and are oppressing your people will one day fall as well. And in the end, the nations will be judged and will enter the kingdom. We thank you for that. And for that we rejoice and we're glad. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.